Man, they're even dropping ads on us at church now. What's going on? Well, hey, that was my favorite Super Bowl commercial, and uh, you have to appreciate the premise of that. There are certain situations where pretty sure just doesn't cut it, right? Like, I'd rather be certain. And uh, as we kind of talk today about the big statement that Jesus made, I am the way, the truth, and the life, uh, and we dig a little bit deeper into that, I really want to set up this idea for you that pretty sure doesn't cut it when it comes to our eternal destiny, right? I mean, if we're really talking about the thing that matters the most, all of those things I want to be more than pretty sure on, but the thing that I want to really be certain of is my eternal destiny. And, and so I love all those examples uh, from the commercial, but above all, how would you answer that question? If somebody asked you, well, hey, where are you going? Where is your ultimate destination? Um, what would your answer be? Are you going to heaven? Well, I'm, I'm pretty sure. I mean, would that be an adequate enough answer? And the question is, do we even, can we have certainty when it comes to that big of a question? It's one of the big, biggest things that any one of us can grapple with. Where am I heading when this life is over? And so is that something that we can have confidence in, that we can have a certainty uh, about? Um, I mean, after all, none of us have been to heaven. I mean, there's some books and movies and stories about people that kind of die and like, you know, are kind of like on the fringe of life and come back. And uh, maybe we've heard some of those stories. But uh, and if any of you have done it, let me know. I'd like I'd be curious. Like, what's it like on the other side? You know, what what does that look like and what is that destination look like? But there are some things that we can have confidence about, even though none of us. Find another one. Okay. All right, there we go. We got a mic. All right. Well, all right, we're back. Okay. Uh, I love what Hebrews says when it talks about our faith. In Hebrews 11, 1, it says this. Now, faith is the certainty of things hoped for, a proof of things not seen. And so what our hope is really built upon, what our certainty is built upon, is really what we talked about and celebrated last week. And that's this concrete, historical moment where Jesus of Nazareth cashed in on his promises, right? And he proved that he is somebody that delivers on every promise that he makes. And so uh, we're going to kind of flash back a little bit and go back since we're tackling these statements uh, of Jesus where he says, I am, and these big I am kind of statements. And so uh, if you want to turn with me, we're going to be at John 14, 1 through 7 today, and uh, we're going to be digging in there. And let me just give you some context before we begin. This is really, as we're tackling this statement today that many of us have heard before, I am the way, the truth, and the life, the context around that is that this is really in some of Jesus' final moments, um, some of these final conversations that he's having. So these statements that he's making at the end of his life, all of his statements that he makes are important, but these are really, really important as he leans in and as he really is comforting his disciples here because he knows what's about to happen. He's about to leave He's about to be crucified. He's about to raise from the dead. But they're not aware of all of what's going to happen. So he's trying to prepare them out ahead of time uh, for when this moment comes. And so John 14, 1 through 7, here's what it says. Do not let your hearts be troubled, he tells them. And interestingly, um, he's the one comforting them. He knows that he's really on the verge of being slaughtered. And he's the one saying to them, hey, guys, listen, don't be troubled. I mean, isn't that just kind of true to the character of Jesus as he's comforting them in his hour, really, of greatest need? So he says this, you believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. 
If it were not so, I would not have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to that place where I'm going. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So you got to appreciate kind of the, just the closeness of this moment. But even in kind of this intimate moment where he's really trying to prepare them at the end, Thomas is confused. Like he's, you got to appreciate Thomas because he's like, what are you talking about? Like how, you know, is this another one of your like riddles? Like I, I'm trying to figure out what, what are you saying? Like how can we know the place? How can we know how to get somewhere? We don't even know where you're going, Jesus. Like, and so he's just being honest. He's like, what are you talking about exactly? And so Jesus responds to him with this statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. So let's assume that ultimately to really be at home or to be settled or to be uh, that place that we all long to be uh, is really with the Father as Jesus lays it out here. That that's really what the kind of the, the core of, of heaven is, is to be with the Father, to finally be one and unified with the Father. And so... Um, Jesus then describes himself as the way, the truth, and the life in that context. So what we're going to do today for a little bit is just break that down, uh, that statement. What exactly is Jesus saying when he says that I'm the way, the truth, and the life? And so how can we then be certain? How can we have confidence that we arrive at that destination of with the Father? Which is far better than the alternative, which is not with the Father, right? So um, here's, here's just a couple of things, and here's some things that really kind of, in this, this specific statement, really is in contrast to modern thinking in a lot of ways, right? Um, so let's talk about some of the contrast here and how we can know and have assurance that Jesus is ultimately the way, the truth, and the life. So the first thing is this. The first idea is that we are taught, have it your way, aren't we? I mean, this is, everywhere we look, we're taught that we should just have it our way. And I won't go into a ton of examples here, but I think you could uh, acknowledge that that's true. Jesus, on the other hand, says, in contrast to that, I am the way. Now, this I am statement that we've been looking at over and over again, in the Greek language, I am, that phrase I am, is a very intense way of referring to oneself. It would be comparable to saying, I myself and only I am, right? So it's like, it's saying, listen, I am, I myself and only I am. So Jesus is saying, I am the, which is also a key article in there. He didn't say, I am a, which would be completely acceptable in, in modern times. Right? But okay, well, he's just saying he's a way, he's a version, he's a one of the ways. But Jesus is saying, no, I am the way, which is really key, important to key in on here. So we're taught, have it your way. And in all those ways, it will probably work out, right? Like, we can be pretty sure that all of those routes will eventually lead to the ultimate destination that we're hoping to get to. But Jesus is saying, no, listen, in contrast to that, I am the way. Now, remember, this idea of having it your way, it's what got us into this broken mess to begin with. I mean, Think back to the story. I don't know if you remember this story, but uh, the, the very first story in the Bible, it involved an apple, a guy named Adam. Then he blames his wife because it was ultimately her fault, right? Sin enters the world. We are under the curse of sin. So I don't know if you remember that one, but that's, that's how we got into the mess with the, was with the mentality of just have it. Your, you should have that, right? I mean, ultimately, you should have. If you want that, God's just trying to withhold something from you. You should have it your way. But Jesus says, no, that's what got us into this mess in the beginning. 
Instead, God offers a way out of this path that ultimately leads to our own self-destruction. In his infinite love, he provides a way back to the Father, even though having it our way is what messed us up to begin with. And so when Jesus says, I am the way, he is saying, again, the way. I used to go down when we were kids to this place called Outer Banks. I don't know if anybody's ever been to, like, Outer Banks, North Carolina. It's really pretty, and there's kind of this little, like, strip. It's like, a, you know, a strip of land that exists between kind of this inlet, and then, you know, you have the ocean kind of on the other side. And so you have, like, the sound on the one side, the ocean on the other side. And so it's, it's just beautiful. But it's about the worst place I think you could probably be in, like, a hurricane. Because you come in, and there is literally one road. like that. And every time we would go over that road to get into Outer Banks, I'm like, that's the only way out of town. Like, what happens if something happens with that bridge? Like, you know, there is no other way out of town. And so that's our only route to rescue is we hope that that bridge is intact if something, you know, happens. Now, Jesus is saying, ultimately, this is... You know, there is one bridge out of town, and I am the bridge. I am the way. And so understanding that ultimately our problem, what separates us from God, is our sin, we can understand then that the only way out of that is a Savior. The Bible teaches us in Isaiah, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear There is only one bridge that spans the expanse of sin that separates us from God. There is no other road to rescue. In Acts 4, 12, when they were preaching the gospel to people, they were telling them, listen, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we may be saved. Since sin is what separates us, we need a Savior uh, to ultimately free us and deliver us from the sin that we're entrapped in. John Stott, he wrote this of sin. He said, the essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. You see, we put ourselves where only God deserves to be, is God. But God puts himself where we deserve to be. This is why the cross is the only way. There is no other bridge out of town. Now, the good news is, when it comes to Christianity, Jesus has already paid the toll. So you might say, well, I don't have enough fill-in-the-blank, good deeds, whatever it might be. You don't know my story. You don't know my past. The one beautiful thing about the cross of Jesus is not dependent on those things. You can come in here just as wretched as can be and receive the gift of grace that God offers and reach out your hand and receive it. So often Christianity is kind of painted as, because of this very statement, as an exclusive, too exclusive, right? Some might say, well, this is too exclusive. Jesus is saying, I am the way. The truth is... Every, every idea, every thought, every worldview, every community, every individual holds ideas that exclude opposing views. I mean, it's just the reality of it. We all ascribe to some version of what we would call the way. And specifically when it comes to salvation, there are a lot of contrasting ways. And Jesus claims to be the way. And so we shouldn't be offended by that. But what is unique about the cross is that anyone can access this path. It's not limited to a certain number of individuals. It's not limited to, it's just limited to those that respond to the gospel. It's based on the promise of Jesus delivered through through his atoning death and resurrection from the grave. In other words, Jesus' invitation is open to anyone and everyone. So it's not exclusive in that sense. So we're taught that you should have it your way. Jesus says, listen, I am the way. Your way will not get you there. It will only drive you further. We're also taught today that all truth is relative. 
Jesus, on the other hand, says, I am the truth. Now, obviously, there's a lot of objective things we could talk about, right, when it comes to aspects of what's right and wrong. But the problem that we need to face and we need to be aware of today is this problem of relativism, which argues that there is no set standard for right or wrong at all. There is no basis for truth, right? And we just, everything's just a matter of opinion. But Jesus says, no, I am the standard of truth. I love what apologist Frank Turek says you should ask when somebody tells you that there is no truth. He says you should ask the question then, is that true? I mean, think about that, right? Because that statement defeats itself, right? Well, if there's no truth, what you just said wasn't true. So we don't operate that way, right? But Jesus says, I am the truth. And we believe that Jesus is the clearest picture of reality. He is our perfect standard of truth, our baseline for morality. Let me give you this illustration. They, they make this thing. I don't, I don't know. I don't use it a whole lot, to be honest with you. But they make this thing. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of it or used it before. But it's called a level. You heard of this before? So it's got this little, like, bubble in the middle, and, like, you know, what it does is it makes sure that things, like, line up straightly, like, right? There's, like, this basis, and it's the level, and you just, you can line things up and make it level depending on that. But usually in my house, the way it works is, you know, I'll be putting up a shelf or whatever it might be, and I'll think about maybe saying, hey, you know, Jess, can you go grab the level for me? But instead I say, and you, I know some of you use this line, too, I'll just eyeball it. You know, like that's, you know, you use the eye, you know, like, and I don't know, but like, it's weird because like the eyeball is a little, it's a little, it can be skewed, you know, because like to my eyeball, I'm like, that's perfectly straight. And Jess walks in, she's like, like, are you sure? Like that looks a little crooked. Like, you know, put a vase on it. It's like sliding to the side. I'm like, well, you know, I eyeballed it, right? But, but the problem with eyeballing it is, is it's obvious, right? It's not, you have, to, you have to use this objective standard when it comes to um, basing whether or not it's level or not. Now, I think we do the same thing a lot when it comes to judging what is right. Or even when we kind of are kind of figuring out our own morality, right, how we're doing. We use the wrong, like, basis for leveling things out, you know. Now, a lot of times what we do is we, like, look at somebody else. Now, I don't know what the thing is with, like, Karen lately, but, like, you notice, like, Karen is, like, sort of the, the butt of every joke, like, online, and everybody's, like, mad about this figmented, like, Karen person, and they're, like, so I'm not going to use that name, right? I'm, I feel bad for Karens everywhere, um, but let's just say Jimmy, right? Like, you got, uh, sorry if you're a Jimmy in here. It's not, it's not personal, I promise, uh, but you're all, you know, this is how we a lot of times level out is, like, you know, God, I know I'm not perfect, you know? I know I'm probably right here, but you, you've heard about Jimmy, right? Like, he's that dude is wretched, you know, that dude is a two-timing, like I could just talk on and on about Jimmy, and we think we're like doing pretty good in comparison to Jimmy. Now the problem is the real level is like way up here, and Jesus is like, guys, none of you are anywhere close to measuring up to the perfect standard of righteousness. Jesus says, I am the truth. So you can argue all day long about whether or not you're better than this person or that person, but you're nowhere close to the perfect standard. So we do this a lot. We justify a lot of times, right, whether or not what we're doing is right or wrong. And so we justify it. We find different reasons for it. And so, again, we're leveling things up in the wrong kind of way. But Jesus provides us with this perfect standard. And the truth is, in light of that standard, we understand that we're all not very good in light of that standard. By our own eyes, by our own estimation, we may think that we are good. But as Romans tells us, no one is righteous. Not one. Isaiah 64, 6 says, we are all infected 
and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and sin, sins sweep us away like the wind. No, instead, Jesus is our baseline for all that is right and good and true, and in comparison to even the best that we can muster up like on our own strength. Those are filthy rags in comparison to the perfect leveler, Jesus. But here's the good news. You might say, well, that's, you know, we all lost, right? Like, that's terrible. How are we ever going to measure up? But putting our trust in Jesus, when we put our trust in Jesus, he imputes, it's kind of a biblical word there, but he imputes his righteousness on us. And so we receive Jesus' righteousness. When God sees us, he sees Jesus standing in our place. Romans 4, 4 through 5 says, Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited to them as righteousness. And so what it's saying is Jesus is just like putting his righteousness in our account even though we don't deserve it. Now, that's a stimulus I'm in favor of. Like, I could give me all that. I need that righteousness. Like, I drop that in my account. And, and Jesus foots the bill on that. He covers that for us. And so we can, in light of that, be righteous not because of, hey, look at me. Look at what I've done. Look at what I can do. And so it frees us from that self-righteousness that exists because we all know that we fall short. We're filthy. Our, our sins are the best of the righteousness that we can muster up as filthy rags in light of who Jesus is. But we can be seen as and operate as righteous because of who Jesus is and because of what he credits to us. And so when Jesus says, I am the truth, is what he's saying. Listen, if you trust in me, you can take on my righteousness as well. We're also taught that we should just follow our desires, right? Wherever our desire leads us, this is, this is the place to go, right? Follow your heart. I mean, we say it in a lot of different ways. Um, now, this breaks down in a lot of ways. You know, Jesus says in contrast to that, I am the life. He's saying I'm the source of life. There's this great story about this woman who has this conversation uh, with Jesus, and the truth is, she's doing some things that are sort of out of bounds, and, um, you know, she, 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 she definitely doesn't have it all together, but she gets to have this really just cool moment with Jesus where he reveals some things to her, and he says to her, listen, everyone who drinks this water, because they, they meet at a well, and everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. But Jesus is saying, listen, I'm the well that never runs dry. I don't know if anybody else, like any of you ladies or maybe gentlemen in here, uh, have a water bottle collection. Anybody? Like, I mean, be honest. Like, we have a lot of cups at our house. And I, I went through, like, the basement. I'm, like, looking through. I'm, like, we have, like, every version of, like, my, my wife likes water bottles. She's, like, I'm, like, I'm going to start calling you the water bottle lady. Like, you got just, like, every version of water bottle. And we got boxes upon as we're, like, cleaning stuff out and, like, putting stuff away now uh, in our new house. Like, we're just, there's water bottles everywhere. And they make a lot of interesting water bottles today. I don't know if you realize this. But they, they have water bottles, which is really cool, by the way, for kids that are actually spill-proof. Although my kids have figured out how to, like, 
I don't know. We're, we're like the, the one person that can figure out how to spill with the spill-proof water. I have no idea how, but apparently they're, they're supposed to be spill-proof. There's water bottles that will keep your water cold for days at a time. I mean, some of you have those, like, Yeti water bottles, you know what I'm talking about. And it's like, it's just promises to keep your water cold for days on end in case uh, you're into that kind of thing. Um, they make these giant water bottles now that people carry around where you, like, you know, you, it's like you got to, like, strap in and like carry this thing around and like a lot of tough guys carry them around to be honest with you and it's just like big old water bottles and then it tells you like how much water you've drunk in a day and I'm like I don't should you even drink that much water in a day like I know water is good for you but that that's a lot of water you know and so there's all and we have like every version of water bottle have me thinking we're a lot of talk about water bottles there'll be a point eventually I promise but they, we, they used to make these things that were like when we were kids and when we go to soccer practice, they were like little igloo coolers, like in this like cylinder form, you know, they were like red or blue and they were like these, they had this like big old spout on them, you know, and these were the, this is the water bottles of our day, you know, and my mom would like put so much ice in it that my brain would like freeze like when I'm like drinking it and I'm like, and they did, they held the, you know, the, the water really good and then it would always happen though, like they were ginormous water bottles, but they still would run out. Like, like they would, and, and the funny thing would be like there would always be that kid, you know, who like didn't they forgot their water, right? And then there'd be the, the mom that like always had her stuff together, and she's got the water bottle, and it sort of became the team water. bottle, And the buddy would be like, "Hey, can I get a little bit of that?" You know, so the water bottle was sort of it's not very COVID friendly, I know, but this is kind of how we operated back in my day. And so what you would do is you just pop the spout open, and you would just dump it over your face, and, like, only a little bit would get in. You'd be, like, covered in it. And then, you know, eventually the guy that actually, like, brought the water bottle, whose mom did the right thing, he, there's no water left for him. He'd be, like, it's, like, gone. Like, what? Like, you know, I brought my water. You guys drank it all. You know, what's going on here? Now, okay, there, there is a point, I promise. Now, <laughs> all of those, it doesn't matter how high-tech or how cool any of those water bottles are they all eventually run dry right I mean there is not they haven't made the water yet that is like the just refills itself over and over again right there's just there's not that 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 uh, water bottle that you can carry with you now the same is true with the things that we actually think are going to give us life I mean, there's so many things that might temporarily, like, refresh us in some way. Like, hey, well, when I just go on that vacation, like, I'm just going to get a little swig of water. I'm going to be refreshed for a little while. I'm feeling good. Or maybe you see that thing. And, like, once I purchase this item, like, I'm going to feel pretty good about that. And I'm going to, you know, th- it, it fills you for just a little while, you know. Or maybe it's kind of a, hey, when I just kind of get to this stage in my life, then I'm just going to be a little bit refreshed, but then the next stage comes and you're not refreshed again, or maybe it's some relationship. Like, if I could just have a relationship in my life, then I would, I'd be refreshed, right? I'd finally, like, have arrived. I'd finally feel sustained. But the truth is, nothing wrong with any of those things, but all of those wells, if that's your source of life, is eventually going to run dry. None of those vessels can do what Jesus promises to do, and that is to be the well, the source of life that actually never runs dry. And we're all guilty of carrying around those other water bottles and saying, man, I just, I'm going to drink from that again, I'm going to drink from that. We get these kind of quick fixes of life, but it all goes away. But on the alternative of that, to have a relationship with Jesus, and Stephen's going to dig into this a little bit deeper next week, when it comes to living in relationship with Jesus and how that really sustains us. But he says, I'm the well that never runs dry. I'm the thing that your soul is actually craving. I'm the thing that you're actually thirsty for. And so 
if Jesus, if that is true, I think what Augustine said is right. If there is a God who created you, then the deepest chamber, chambers of your soul simply cannot be filled by anything less. I mean, we're going to always feel empty until we start running back to the source of life constantly and consistently. The psalmist declares in Psalm 1, 1 through 3, Blessed is the one who does not walk and step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. The person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yield its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. And so the one that just loves the law of God, the one that actually just loves the things of God and wants to chase after the things of God because they know that all the things that Jesus calls us to and really all the things that Jesus calls us away from are all meant to, to, to help us to find the truest and most lasting source of life we can experience here and now. Psalm 16 says, Your boundaries have fallen in pleasant places. I mean, that we look at the boundaries that God has set for us and know that those things are all for our good. It's all so that we can experience life and have it to the fullest. So we find true life in living the way of Jesus. You're not going to find life anywhere else. We're told also that it's just about being a good person, right? You've heard this, right? If I'm just a good enough person, or we say, well, hey, that person's a good person, or that person's a good person, and we're told that ultimately that that's all that's going to be counted in the end, is that was that person a good person, or were they not a good person? Jesus, on the other hand, says, nobody gets to the Father except through me. I've been dealing with injury off and on, and so, like, anytime I'm dealing with an injury, like, in my back or hip or whatever, I always go back to the same, the one thing that doesn't, like, make me hurt, which is, like, the stationary bike. I use this rogue bike, and I just, for whatever reason, that thing just, like, I, I do all right. But the, the, it's kind of discouraging. Like, I would rather go out and run because, I like, I got from this point to this point. On the stationary bike, you can pedal as hard as you want, and you don't move at all. You're just like, you're there, and you might get a good workout, a good sweat, but I'm like, I, maybe I need to, like, change to an actual bike. But it doesn't matter how far, hard I pedal. That thing isn't moving. Christianity teaches something that no other ideology offers to us. If you look at the foundational truths, and I encourage you to do some digging, study the different major religions for yourself. Don't just take my word for it. But if you look at the foundational truths of every major religion, Judaism, Islam, walk on down the list, it's all built on the basis of being able to do enough dot, 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 dot to get yourself there, to work your way to God, to pedal your way to God. Getting to God is then all about how hard you pedal. It's about how good you are. It's about doing the right list of, of things, right? How many good deeds you can perform, how much you can do. Tim Keller, he refers to this as the moral improvement view, the view that we can relate to God and go to heaven through just living a good life. Keller points out how Christianity is different. God's grace doesn't operate that way. It doesn't come to people who morally outperform others, but to those who admit their failure to perform and acknowledge their need for a Savior. I mean, that's really what it comes down to is this response to the gospel. To say yes to Jesus, to put our trust in him. To say yes, to confess that he's Lord, to repent of our sin, to turn to him and be baptized into him. I mean, this is, this is what, it, what we do in response to the gospel. We just respond to the gospel. 
And that invitation is open to anyone and everyone. And then you can have confidence, you can have certainty that you will arrive at the Father at the other side of this life. Friends, as Christians, our moral improvement then flows from God's grace. It doesn't work for God's grace. Does that make sense? Yeah, we try to improve. We try to make progress. We don't just kind of take on this cheap grace. We, we live in response to the beautiful news of Jesus. And so every day we wake up and we have this fresh opportunity to, to live in freedom of knowing that God's grace covers us. And so we want to be the absolute best we can for him. Ephesians 2, 4 through 9 says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in transgression. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Jesus Christ, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So we can continue to, to pedal, right, as hard as we can to try to be good enough, and that seems like a moving target all the time. And the truth is, all the moral improvement approach does is get us right back to self-righteousness, it gets us right back to hypocrisy and duplicity. What do I mean by that? Well, an example would be uh, that, I don't know if you knew this, but the, the terrorists who crashed into uh, the World Trade Buildings and, and into the Pentagon um, or, or that were, um, you know, that had, had kind of orchestrated this attack. Um, they projected, right, that they, the reason they were doing this was it was like this, this God-honoring thing, right? This is what they talked about, that this was on the outside. They're projecting this devotion to God. But um, what we know from their last days on earth, their last day on earth was that they were Hold up in a hotel room, ordering all kinds of food and watching pornography. I mean, this is the duplicity, right? On the outside, I'm devoted, right? I'm, I'm devoted. This is all for God. This is all for Allah. And then in the background is all this wickedness and wretchedness. And I think that we can all, if we're not careful, fall into that same kind of duplicity when we try to just, you know, project this great image or try to just clean things up on the outside, but we don't let that heart work take place where we put our faith and trust in Jesus. But by his power, by his grace, we can experience this allegiance to him. We can allow God to transform us from the inside out. And we do that by remembering that nobody comes to the Father except through Jesus. That is our only route, is through Jesus. It is not through our striving, but it's through our surrender to his unfailing love and grace. And that should be freeing to us. And that should feel like freedom to you today. Not so that you can just go do whatever you want, but so you can step into that life that you were meant to live. And all you got to do is say yes. All you got to do is respond to the gospel. And we can talk about that. I would love to walk anyone through that that has never made that decision, that doesn't feel like they can walk out of here today with more than a well, where are you going after that? I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm going to heaven. I, I don't know. I mean, you can have confidence because of what Jesus has done. Uh, we, uh, we have a neighbor that when, that when we just moved into this new house, there's an older couple that lives out on, on the road um, from us, and we share, like, a driveway with a couple different houses. And so, um, you know me, like, a lot of people in the country, like, they're just kind of, like, to keep to themselves. But I'm, 
I still want to be neighborly, you know, so I'm meeting my neighbors, and, like, I could tell at first they were maybe reluctant, like, we're walking up to these people's house, you know, I got my kids, you know, like, jumping around, things like that, but we got to meet this couple, and, um, you know, in in kind of talking to them and and getting to know them, and I would see him out, his name is Harvey, he'd always be out, like, uh, waving to us, like, on the mower, and uh, what I came to learn was that um, really shortly after we moved in, Harvey began a very aggressive battle with uh, cancer and uh, so I wouldn't see him out there as much anymore and then he wasn't on the mower at all and then you know I kind of started I reached out and uh, uh, to his wife and I was just like hey uh, you know give me updates anything we can do we want to be available to you guys whatever and you know she's like well, we have a lot of help but you know we'll keep you updated and so she would give me updates along the way and um, this continued to escalate in his life and it became clear that he probably wouldn't make it a whole lot longer and so uh, they brought in hospice care into his house, and every day I would go past their house on my way out or, you know, walking Aiden down to the bus stop. I just pray for him, you know. I got, I don't know what you're trying to accomplish here or what you're doing. I just pray that your favor would be upon him, and, um, you know, so we just pray that prayer. Now, the other day I drove down, it was on Thursday, and uh, I was taking Aiden to the bus, and um for whatever reason, I just woke up. You know, sometimes you just wake up with, like, a song, and you're, like, you're just singing that song. And, like, I, it's not like we sing this song that, like, I'm about to tell you about here very often. Like, it's, it's more of kind of an old-school hymn. That, but I really like this song. And for whatever reason, the song popped into my head. And it was uh, Albert Brumley's song, I'll Fly Away. You know, that, I don't know if you know that song. It's such a good song. And I, I was actually just singing it down at the bus stop. And, you know, some glad morning. You don't want to hear me sing. But when this life is over... I'll fly away to a home on God's celestial shore. I'll fly away. I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. When I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. And I was just singing, Aiden's like, what is that song? You know, we're just talking about it. And, uh, you know, but we, I, I drop him off at the bus, and I go walk up, and I have this message from her. And she said, um, hey, wanted to let you know Harvey passed last night. And, uh just interesting to me that that happened to be the song, you know, that, that I was singing that day. Do what you want with that. But um, I, I do believe that, that he trusted in the promise of Jesus. And so that song was more than just a song for him. It was a reality. And, and I think it can, be, it can be. We can have confidence that that can be a reality for all of us. That some glad morning when it's all over, and that day is going to come for all of us at some point in time, but we can trust in the fact that we will fly away to a home on God's celestial shore that will fly away. I mean, and talk about, talk about something to, to celebrate, talk about something uh, to put our hope in, that one day that we'll fly away. Um, whenever that day comes that we die, that we get to be at home with Jesus, uh, we get to be at home with God, we get to, to finally uh, be free once and for all. So let's just take a minute and pray, and um, we're going to maybe sing a chorus of that, and, uh, and then just close out in song together today. God, thank you for this opportunity to gather in your name. We thank you that it really is all dependent on Jesus, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. That we shouldn't be troubled, that we don't have to be troubled because you have prepared a place for us and that one day, God, we will. We will fly away to be with you, to be reunited with you, to be to that place, God, where all of our hearts long to be. We give you thanks in Jesus' name.